The reading is from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, and then 44 to 46. It's Matthew chapter 13. The parables of the mustard seed and the yeast. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch at its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowds in parables. He did, it, he did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. The parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Page uh, 980 is where those four parables that we're going to be looking at together this morning. And those parables come in pairs. The first pair are the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. And both contrast small beginnings with a great end. And then there's the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. And both raise the question of the cost of entry into the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, particularly in relationship to other priorities, often in the case of the good contrasted with the best. Now, most of us have seen the epic film Ben-Hur. If uh, you weren't old enough, and quite a few of you were, uh, to watch it when it came out in the cinemas in somewhere in the early 60s, um, then I'm sure you've seen it in the umpteen times it gets repeated on television. And those were the days of the, uh, the big budgets for epic films, and extras were cheap, and so filming could be on a really grand scale, uh, with thousands of actors and in scenes such as the triumphal entry of the legions into Rome. I mean, they are really quite spectacular. None of this computer-aided graphic stuff to kind of, you know, just copy them. They're real people, and they are really impressive. I mean, the Romans did kind of uh, impact in grand style. It was very impressive indeed. Now, what a contrast to the crucified carpenter from Nazareth and his rather unpromising band of followers. If you'd been there, you'd been a social commentator, you'd have thought, have they got a future? Surely they're just going to fizzle out 
Like many previous messianic movements from one of the most unpromising parts of the Roman Empire, is anything so small and so seemingly insignificant really going to make an impact anywhere? And is it really worth investing your life in that? And yet, where are we today? 2.2 billion of the world's population of 6.9 billion identify as Christians. That's a third of the world's population, 31%. There is apparently a net gain from all sources of 40 million converts to the Christian faith annually. One example, the land Batar, which I'm sure if I asked you, you'd tell me, yeah, I know, that's the capital of uh, Mongolia. Well, maybe you wouldn't. But a friend and I thought of going there once, uh, many years ago, when we were both bachelors, and we happened to have a week off in December and thought, where should we go for a week's holiday? And we thought of going to Mongolia until we did a little bit of uh, further research and found that it was minus 27 on a good day at Celsius in, um, in Mongolia in December. But on a bad day, it's minus 40. So we had a rethink. Uh, now that, I think, was in 1978, when according to the Barnabas Fund, there would have been just four Christians in the whole of that country. Today, there are over 40,000 Christians. So who'd have believed that in 1978, that my friend and I could go to Mongolia and we would have increased the Christian population by 50%, you know, just the two of us, yeah. Whereas, of course, today if we went, we would be insignificant amongst the 40,000. Well, Jesus tells us these first two parables that that is exactly what his hearers could expect. And we have the benefit of hindsight. We can see that it was right. It has come to pass. So the parable of the mustard seed, verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. And once the tree has grown, he says, the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So the point of comparison here is not the seed itself, but what happens once it is sown. A mustard seed was proverbially, proverbially in those days, um, minute. It was the smallest seed used by farmers of those days in that part of the world. But when the three millimetre seed was planted, it grew to be the largest of all the garden plants, often three metres, ten feet high or more. We sometimes say big trees from little acorns grow, which uh, comes from the acorn seed growing over time to become a huge oak tree. 
as Tim reminded us this morning. I didn't know he was going to do that, but it's a very helpful illustration, isn't it? Little things become big things. I can remember planting an acorn seed with uh, one of my sons, Dan, when he must have been, I don't know, about five or six. Thought it's a nice thing to do, really. You know, plant something and he can watch it grow. And it did, you know, it grew to about three feet quite quickly. But then the resident gardener, who's full of wisdom and sensible, said, we must chop it down because otherwise the roots are going to go under the house and the house will fall down. So, down it comes. Well, back to the microscopic mustard seed, which grows to be the largest of all the garden plants. The point of the parable lies in the contrast between the insignificant beginning and the largest of garden plants, which results. And so it is with the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then adds that it becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. Now, Jesus is thinking of the Old Testament use of the tree as an image for a great empire. It was used in Ezekiel and Daniel of uh, the Babylonian Empire, for example. Again suggesting that the kingdom of heaven will expand to world dominance. And those Old Testament passages also contain the picture of the birds in its branches. In those passages, the birds represent the nations gathered under the protection of the empire. And it seems that Jesus is referring to the coming of the Gentiles into the kingdom of heaven. But again, the main point of the parable lies simply in the huge extent of this kingdom, which has developed from such small beginnings. So although the kingdom of heaven will seem to have an insignificant beginning, it will eventually spread throughout the world and the people of all nations will find rest in it. So from insignificance to worldwide growth, as Jesus states in this parable, the kingdom of heaven did seem to have an insignificant beginning. It was like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. And its king the Lord Jesus Christ, was poor in this world. He was born in a stable, and during his ministry it was said that he had nowhere to lay his head. He was put to death on a cross like a common criminal. His first followers were very small in number. While the crowds were amazed at his teaching and his miracles when he was up in the Galilee, by the time he was in Jerusalem, They shouted to have him crucified. They even faced with the choice of releasing Jesus or releasing a terrorist. They opted for Barabbas, the terrorist. Even the religious leaders, who you would have expected to have been able to identify the arrival of this Messiah, plotted to kill him. The kingdom's membership probably didn't reach a thousand at the time that he was crucified, risen and then ascended into heaven. Those like the apostles who uh, took the good news of the kingdom were few, and they were relatively unsophisticated guys. They didn't have, most of them, a good education. They were fishermen. There was a tax collector. There was a zealot. Its doctrines regarding uh, sin and the cross of Jesus 
challenged the natural human heart. You know, they weren't the things to lead with if you were doing a massive PR exercise. As the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Its values and ethics also challenge the natural human heart and the unrenewed mind. Its first missionary movements and churches met with persecution from both Jews and Gentiles alike. It was regarded as a sect which many hated and opposed. The kingdom was like a mustard seed at its beginning. But the growth of the kingdom of God and the Christian church and the progress of the gospel after the tiny seed was planted in the field was great steady and continuous. The Lord Jesus Christ said in this parable that it would be so. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. So in spite of persecution, opposition and violence from Jewish and religious leaders, Roman emperors and others, Christianity gradually spread and increased. Bishop Ryle points out, they may as well have tried to stop the tide from flowing or the sun from rising. In a few hundred years, the religion of the despised Nazarene had overrun the civilised world. Country after country in the then known world was reached with the gospel, and church after church was planted. The Christian faith was professed by many in Asia Minor, in North Africa, right the way to Rome itself, and even as far as India by 57 AD, that is less than 30 years after Jesus died. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. The kingdom of heaven will continue to expand throughout the world. The tiny seed will grow to a remarkable size and people from all nations will find rest in it, said Jesus. And it has. So some challenges. How will you choose, if you've not already done so, will you choose to go with Jesus or not? Will you join with him in expanding his enterprise or not? And if you have sided with Jesus, do you sometimes despair I mean, for a lot of song and dance, you know, the Christian faith isn't making massive headways in the Western world at the moment. It is just about everywhere else. I mean, the Chinese government are even making it difficult for Christians to meet at the moment because it's spreading so fast. We have more Christians than communists before they know where they are, really. We should never despair, though, of any work for Christ because it has small beginnings. Whether we're the only Christian teacher in a school and God lays upon us that it would be a good thing to try and have a Christian union 
or whether we are in fact just half a dozen kids in uh, secondary school or young adults in FE colleges and we think what can we do? Well start small, meet together and see what happens. Or the only Christian at work as far as we know and uh, how do we shine as a Christian by the way we do our work, by the sort of demeanour and outlook that we have. Some of us uh, invest a bit of time sometimes feeling that you're a lone worker trying to uh, reform a church which in many ways is fallen. But let us remember this parable and take courage. Again, Bishop Ryle talking of uh, Martin Luther, the reformer. One man, he says, with the living seed of God's truth on his side, like Luther, may turn a nation upside down. If God is with him, none shall stand against him. In spite of men and devils, the seed that he sows shall become a great tree. And as Solzhenitsyn says, as I've told you I think a few times, that when he was in the gulags he said, one word of truth outweighs the whole world. And who would have thought when he was in the gulags that the Soviet Union in 1989 would come tumbling down? We are to make the most of every opportunity to help further God's kingdom. We're to pray, but we're also to be patient. For Jesus' disciples, there was a natural impatience. You see it sometimes in the Gospels. They want to see God's glory and the total eradication of all that opposed to it. But they were probably thinking of, we want to put on a gathering as big and as impressive as the Roman legions marching as conquerors into their capital. But a wise word from a former principal of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, in his commentary, writes, To them and to us today, who may expect God to act dramatically and without delay, Jesus points out that the full growth is assured from the moment the seed is sown. However unpromising its appearance and whatever opposition it may meet in its development, the way of God is not that of ostentation, but of ultimate success. Little, he says, is great where God is at work. Which leads us to the second parable, the parable of the yeast, verse 33. Jesus told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Again, the contrast is between the tiny quantity of yeast and the size of its effect. The large amount of flour would be um, about 40 litres. It would be enough to make bread for about 100 people. And just a little bit of fermented dough put in amongst it and it transforms the whole. When the yeast is mixed, it is hidden. You can't see it, but it is still at work. Now, I'm not really up on baking. Um, that shouldn't probably surprise you. But I know that with my bread maker that I bought and now don't seem to get around to using, that if I added half of one of those uh, little yeast tablets to a bag of flour, stuff it in my bread maker, 
out comes a loaf of bread. It might be a bit like a brick, but it works. But if you don't have the yeast, it doesn't work. And so too the kingdom of heaven. Obscure and hidden, it will pervade society and permeate the whole world. As yeast permeates a batch of dough, so the kingdom spreads through a person's life and then throughout society as others are added to the kingdom. The parable shows the spread of the gospel in a person's life, doesn't it? The first beginnings of God's grace in the life of a sinner as we once all were are usually small, like the mixture of yeast with a large lump of dough. It could be a single verse from the Bible or a sentence from a sermon or an act of kindness received from a Christian. Often those are the starting points in those who are to receive Christ. The work of grace will gradually leaven the whole lump as we come to be convinced of the truth that is revealed, convicted of our sin, and come through to conversion to Christ. And whenever a real work of the Holy Spirit begins in the heart, the whole character is gradually leavened and changed. Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. All of this is from God. The leaven of grace shall eventually leaven the whole lump. In other words, as Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. How do you identify with that? With a gradual, growing, spreading, increasing, leavening process going on in you. Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, leavening the whole lump. However, you may be thinking of the cost of either becoming a Christian or even remaining a Christian and be tempted to think whether it is all worth it or not. And that's where these two other parables come in, the parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. They help us to consider how much we are prepared to pay for being Christians and how it relates to the other important things and people in our lives. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. So the picture is of a poor tenant farmer labouring away. He's digging, he's ploughing, and suddenly he turns up a pot. Now in those days, with no banks and with marauding armies sort of toing and froing between Egypt and, well, the fertile crescent and everything that lies beyond it, um, uh, what they did was a um, about a third of their wealth was tied up in their business, which provided them with their regular income. 
A third was kept in various forms of precious jewels, which are highly portable in case you had to do a runner quickly. And the third was kept in the form of gold coins and buried in clay pots. So you had something to come back to when the army had gone. Anyway, our farmer discovers this pot and then it's stuffed with more gold than he could ever earn in a hundred lifetimes. So he hides it again, because if he dug it up, it will belong to the landowner. So he buries it, and he races home, and he sells the house, he sells the car, he empties every savings account that he's got, and he makes his landlord an offer that the landlord can't refuse. Now, is there a cost to what he does? Well, in one sense, yes, because he sells all that he has. But in another sense, no, not really, because what he gains is infinitely more than what he pays for it. And Jesus says, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like that. To be in the kingdom of heaven means to have Jesus as our king. It means that we stop living our way as if we were the own master of our lives and that we've been forgiven for doing that through Jesus' death on the cross and that we've begun a new life with Jesus as our king, which is a relationship that will last through death and into heaven. Now, is there a cost to all of that? Well, in one sense, yes. And the cost here, I think, is to do with people. Most of us came kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven. We resisted God, many of us, I'm sure, quite a number of times before we ever allowed him to break into our life. And it's likely then that if family and friends realise that we've got God, as they might describe it, then they sense that God is getting closer to them through you. Just your presence reminds them of God And they don't want to be, and nor did you originally, want to be reminded of God. You do not want him pressing upon you, confronting you with a choice. So as they sense God getting closer to them through you, it's understandable that they might give you a bit of grief. But it's God they're really worried about, about him getting too close to them. And that can cost us. It can cost us people's approval. It can cost us popularity. It's uncomfortable and it's awkward. We've maybe forgotten some of that, but if we became a Christian as a teenager or at university or if we were in the armed forces or the fire service or the ambulance service, where things where there's quite a high degree of camaraderie. Gosh, you can feel out if you're going against the sort of stream of uh, whatever is the prevailing culture 
at the time. And it's tempting to look at being a Christian and say, is it really worth it? But, says Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure because the gain of being a Christian is infinitely more than the cost of being one. We may lose the approval of some people in this life, including, sadly, sometimes people who are close to us, whose approval matters a lot to us. But then, you might recall a few chapters earlier in Matthew, where Jesus is talking about the last day, the day when he winds it all up, when we all have to meet him. And he says this, Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Now on that day, we will not doubt that the gain of having Jesus' approval is infinitely more than the external cost of losing a bit of human approval in this life. Yes, it might be more uncomfortable for the believer in this life, but there'll be no believer in heaven who looks back and says, I'd rather have had comfort in that life and be in hell now. The gain of being a Christian is infinitely, eternally, more than the cost. And in our last parable, Jesus repeats the point because it's important. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So this time we picture um, a rich businessman, he's probably in the pearl trading business, he's probably rather obsessed with pearls, and um, he is so keen to have the very best pearl there is. So here's a man who knows what he's looking for in life, a man with ambition and aims, until one day he's stopped in his tracks by one thing, it says. And that one thing replaces everything else in importance. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. He finds this one pearl and sells his whole collection, the whole business, to get it. All his carefully laid plans and ambitions go out the window and are replaced by this one thing. So perhaps it's not a straight repeat of the point. Perhaps in this parable, Jesus is hinting at the cost of priorities, how being a Christian will affect and shape the whole of our lives. The point of this parable is that in having Jesus as king, we have to give over everything. We sell up, if you like, the right to run our own lives and to live for our own plans and ambitions and dreams and agendas. 
But we must not let, Jesus says in the parable of the sower, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. By the worries of this life, he means many of the concerns we have, many of which are quite legitimate. Some, though, might not be. Concerns about who we marry, what career we pursue, where we live, our children's education, or how we use our time and our money, and whether our personal faith is private or whether it is public. In Matthew 13, 45 to 46, he says that having Jesus as king replaces them all. At least it will if we've understood who Jesus really is. And that the only plan worth investing in is his plan to get the gospel to the world and to bring people from all nations back to himself in his church and ultimately into heaven. But again, is that a cost? Well, in one sense, yes, Jesus overturns all our priorities. But in another sense, not really. After all, who wants to invest in plans and things that ultimately won't last? How much are we prepared to pay for being a Christian? Is the cost worth it? Well, I can't answer for you. But we'll never answer yes unless we're convinced about these things, that Jesus truly is God the King, that he died for our sin, and that he rose again, and that heaven and hell are realities. Only if we see those eternal things as they really are, will we see the costs in this life as they really are and be prepared to pay them. We have to let go of things and sometimes of people. To have Jesus as king, they can seem very big. They can seem worth holding on to. They can, though, rob us of the joy in being Christians. They can even stop us from becoming Christians. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had 